At about 8.45am on Sunday the 17th of July this year, I had a moment of phenomenal clarity about life and about the importance of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Put baldly like that, it sounds rather pompous and quite frankly a horribly arrogant statement, so let me explain. 30 minutes earlier I'd received a call to say that my mum had died and now there I was at 8.45 on Sunday the 17th of July sitting by her bedside where she'd been lovingly laid out by the staff of the nursing home that she'd been in for the last couple of weeks of her life. And as I sat there all alone in that quiet room looking at her body, motionless and lifeless, I had a heightened sense of what really matters in life. Now, I've been a Christian for 28 years and through those years I've always believed what I felt at that moment but as I looked at my mum's body just moments after she'd taken her last breath there was no doubt in my mind being certain of eternity with Jesus because of his death and resurrection matters more than anything because eternity is a very long time and where we spend it is where we spend the rest of our days forever. And that's why the question at the heart of our Bible passage this morning is so crucial for everyone to engage with. In verse 17, a man ran up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Quite simply, it is the most important question we can ever ask. What else could matter more than being sure about life beyond the grave? Because death is our great enemy. We need the answer to the problem of death more than anything. Oh, for sure, life is full of enemies. Here we are on September the 11th, 9-11, on the 10th anniversary of those momentous events that rocked the world and some say that changed the world. I remember the, uh, the words of one reporter on the 12th of September. He wrote, if New York is not safe, if the Pentagon is not safe, then quite simply we are not safe. I guess many of us remember how in the days that followed President George W. Bush declared a war on terror and so global terrorism has become one of the great enemies of the first decade of the 21st century. Along with global warming in these past years we've been made increasingly aware of the melting of the polar ice cap, of of harmful carbon emissions and of the plight of our planet as a result of our utterly reckless consumerist lifestyles global terrorism, global warming, and then, of course, there's global poverty. As a human race, we seem unable or maybe unwilling to organise ourselves in such a way that we can put an end to world poverty once and for all. So, as we speak, in the Horn of Africa, millions are starving, children are dying. While here in the West, we're told that obesity is heading towards becoming a problem of epidemic proportions. Global terrorism, global warming, global poverty and then of course in these last years a global recession has become another further great enemy for us to fight. An enemy that has caused untold distress in many parts of the world and it seems will continue to wreck lives for many years to come as the very real possibility of a double dip recession looms on the horizon. These are colossal adversaries, global enemies that the human race is fighting against but the Bible is clear The last great enemy is death. For as Ecclesiastes says, where there's life, there's hope, but the dead know nothing. Death is so final. Sit by the bedside of the one you love just after they've died and you'll know the pain of it. 
And so the issue of eternal life that this Bible passage raises could not be more important. Look at life in the light of eternity and it clarifies the mind. It brings into sharp relief what I should live my life for, what I will give my heart to. And that is the issue that we've set before ourselves through September, to consider what it means to, in the words of the song, give my soul, my life, my all to follow Jesus Christ. We saw last week that being sold out for Jesus is is not an exceptional standard for the Christian. Being a, a total Christian, if I can put it that way, is not a kind of gold standard for really impressive Christian people. No, chapter 8, verse 34, that we saw last week, and I printed on here so that we can remember it. Jesus called the crowd to him, along with disciples, and said, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Following Jesus can only be done wholeheartedly, sacrificially, unreservedly. Otherwise, I'm not following him at all. And that's not because I have to reach a moral standard to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's because unreserved, unqualified commitment to Christ is the only reasonable response to his first loving me. As the hymn that we've just sung put it, when I survey the wondrous cross, I discover love so amazing, so divine, that it demands only one response. My soul, my life, my all. Now this week, as we look at Mark chapter 10, we'll be challenged to search our hearts to see what it is that is stopping us to live wholeheartedly for Christ. So to that end, let me pray for us now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we may have a clarity, a phenomenal clarity about what really matters in the light of eternity. Help us to see what we should live our lives for, what we should give our hearts to. And please expose the counterfeit gods that are in our lives, the idols we look to to give us what only you can give. We are asking you, our Heavenly Father, to help us to see clearly the spiritual realities of life and death. Would you do it for us this morning through your Spirit, for the honour of your your glory and your name. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. We come then, having looked at the introduction to our first point on the handout, and as we do, uh, let me introduce you this morning to Sir Richard Mann. That's what I've called the fellow who ran up to Jesus in verse 17. Sir Richard Mann, sir, because when Luke records this same event, he tells us that Richard Mann was a ruler. And I've called him Richard because I imagine his friends called him Rich because, verse 22, he was very wealthy. He was a rich man, Sir Richard Mann. Now, as Jesus talked with Rich, we discover from the lips of Jesus what it means to follow him. Look at the words at the end of verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says, do this, and in a moment we'll see what he tells the man to do. Uh, Do this, then, end of verse 21, come, follow me. It's the same language we saw last week in chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Come, follow me. As we meet him... A rich wasn't yet a follower of Jesus, but he, he knew enough about Jesus to go bounding up to him, verse 17, fall on his knees and ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And the more I thought about his approach to Jesus, the more I've warmed to young Rich. Uh, he was wealthy, uh, suits from Savile Row, ties from Harrods, Harrods uh, an Aston Martin parked round the corner. He was loaded. And there's no question, success can go to your head. But on all the evidence before us, that wasn't the case with this young man. He was delightfully humble. He had wealth and a position in society. But, verse 17, Sir Richard ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees. What's more, he was a moral bloke. In verse 20, we discover that he was bothered about keeping the commandments. So he's got manners, he's got morals, and he's got money. It seems that Rich has everything. In fact, there's only one thing more he needed. If he had just one more thing, he'd have everything that anyone could ever want in life. There's just one thing missing. He's not a Leeds United supporter. Uh, thank you for laughing. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that funny, I know, but thank you for staying with me. Uh, now, now look, uh, what, what really is so impressive about this man is that he has so much, yet it doesn't stop him from recognising that he doesn't have all the answers. And most crucially, he doesn't have the answer to the million dollar question. The issue that we've already seen this morning is more important than any other in life, the question of eternal life. And so he ran up to Jesus and said, how can I be sure of life beyond the grave? Uh, Jesus, verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. Which led to, secondly, a surprising response from, verse, from, from Jesus, verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. There are a number of surprises in this passage, but what surprises me first in this exchange is the way Jesus responds to this great question that Richard Mann asked him. You see, if someone were to run up to me and ask me what they had to do to be saved, I would quickly explain to them two ways to live. I've usually got one of these booklets on, on, on me and I would have uh, turned, turned it up. If I didn't, I know it well enough to be able to explain it. And so, had it been me here and not Jesus, verse 18 would be going to box one. God is the loving creator of the world and he created us to be uh, under his rule, to look after the world uh, for him. And then in the next verse you'd hear me talking about box two. But that's not how it is now. We've all rejected God. We've gone our own way, wanting to run our lives our own way. And so on. Verse, the next box would have been talking about judgment. That's how I'd have responded to his question. But Jesus doesn't do that at all, does he? First, Jesus focuses on the way Rich addressed him. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And now at first glance, in this surprising response, it seems that Jesus is ignoring the question. Such a good question. But that's not the case at all. The issue of eternal life, you see, is entirely bound up with the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, you called me good. Is that because you know who I am? For verse 18, no one is good except God alone. And today in 21st century Britain, we're quite happy to describe someone as a good person. I do it all the time. Someone was asking me about someone I knew this week and I said, oh, she's a really good person. But a first century Jew should never be that loose with the word good. On a number of occasions, the Old Testament scriptures proclaim, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. In the Bible, the title of good is given to God alone. Exactly what Jesus said in verse 18. So, Rich, did you call me good because you know that I am God? 
Or do you have a wrong understanding of what it means to be good? Well, as we read on, we'll see that Richard Mann didn't understand who Jesus is and certainly didn't understand what it means to be good. So, verse 19, Jesus begins to show him what goodness really is. Verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. See here, in verse 19, Jesus points rich to God's law. But as I read it, did you see what Jesus does with this? He only quotes five of the Ten Commandments and he adds in, do not defraud. Crucially, Jesus omitted five of the commandments and that should have got rich thinking. I've uh, I've just become an uncle. Uh, My brother and sister-in-law became parents on the 14th of August when Jemima Hannah Grace was born. Seven pound three ounces. I am very excited about little Jemima, almost as proud as when I first became a dad. Indeed, those, uh, those first days of being a dad are coming flooding back as I speak to my brother on the phone and he the, he, the doting father, tells me every detail about changing nappies and, and sleep patterns and breastfeeding. Well, well, thankfully, he doesn't tell me every detail about the breastfeeding. Anyway, the point is this. His experiences are taking me back to those early days of parenthood and I, I've been thinking about those... Um, those early days when I used to sing nursery rhymes to our children when they were younger. I'd sing the same nursery rhymes over and over and over again. And the children loved them and they knew them, every word inside and out and back to front. And you know how it goes, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. You know how it goes. My children know how it goes. And if I stumbled over a line or got a word wrong, they would laugh at me and say, silly daddy. Now Rich would have been the same with the Ten Commandments. He was a good Jewish boy. He'd have known the Ten Commandments inside and out and back to front. He would have been taught them from a very early age. And so as Jesus quoted five of them, Richard have said to Jesus, you've missed some out. But no. He replied thirdly with an ill-informed reaction. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. That's where we see that Rich doesn't understand what it means to be good. He thinks he is good. He thinks he's kept God's law, but verse 18, no one is good except God alone. Jesus quite deliberately left five commandments out. He wanted Rich to think about God's law, to think about how the Ten Commandments begin. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Don't worship anything else. And then the penny should have dropped, it should have dawned on Rich, he should have realised that far from keeping God's law, as he said in verse 20, he'd fallen at the first hurdle and come to that at the second. We see in reality we do have other gods, many of them. Martin Luther, the great reformer, described our hearts as idol factories. In his excellent book on idolatry, Tim Keller writes, the human heart is a factory that mass produces idols. We all have idols in our hearts, loads of them. We push God to one side for other things, for the little trinkets of life that we so treasure. I look at my children and despair sometimes. I despair at the way they get so enamoured by a toy they want. 
I frankly get irritated with them when they pester us relentlessly for the thing that they so need, the thing that will make them so happy and content. We tell them they've already got so many toys. We get frustrated by them going on and on about what they want because we know that in no time at all they'll, they'll put that so longed-for thing in a drawer never to be played with again and they'll move on to desire another thing. And our children disappoint us, not only because they're like that, but because they won't learn. But we're no different. Our toys may be, well, to us, slightly more sophisticated, but we're just like children, dissatisfied with our lot, longing for the next thing, the next promotion, the next holiday, the bigger house, the newer car, a different lover, a different lifestyle, a Our hearts are idol factories, mass-producing idols, things we look to in belief. They'll give us the satisfaction we crave, the security that we need, the, the purpose that we yearn for. We look for things to give us what can only be found in God. That is idolatry and it's at the heart of all human disobedience. Listen to this uh, section from... Uh, from Tim Keller's book, as he explains the way that Luther thought and taught. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong, he says. No one grasps this better than Martin Luther. In his large catechism and in his treatise on good works, he wrote that the Ten Commandments begin with a commandment against idolatry. Why does this come first? Because, he argued, the fundamental motivation behind law-breaking is idolatry. We never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. Why do we fail to love or keep promises or live unselfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we're weak and sinful. But the specific answer in any actual circumstance is that there is something you feel you must have to be happy. Something that is more important to your heart than God himself. We would not lie unless we first had made something, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advantage, more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favour of God. And so Jesus turned to rich and confronted his idol with verse 21 and the fourth point, a loving demand. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I love those first seven words in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I know my reaction would have been quite different. See, as Rich declared that he kept the commandments, I'd have thought to myself, oh, come on, let's have a bit of honesty here. And I know I'd have thought like that because I've talked to people in the past just like Rich, people who've told me they've never done anyone any harm, they've always tried their best, they've kept the Ten Commandments. And rather than love them, sarcastic remarks fly into my head and I've not said it, but I've wanted to say to them, what a remarkable person you are. What a privilege it is for me to meet you today. You've never done anybody any harm. You've always tried your best. You've kept the Ten Commandments. Thank you so much for speaking to me. 
We're grateful that Jesus was not filled with such sarcasm. He was filled with love for rich. And notice next what Jesus does out of his love for Sir Richard Mann. Jesus loves him so much that he's prepared to say the hard thing to him. So he says, verse 21, One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Go and sell everything. What an ask. For verse 22, he was very wealthy. So what's going on here? So Richard Mann ran up to Jesus to ask him a great question, verse 17. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, verse 21, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. It's actually what we saw last week. It's Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. Here we see what that means. Fleshed out, lived out. Deny yourself, sell everything. Take up your cross, give to the poor. And the reason Jesus said this to this man was that money was Sir Richard Mann's idol. You see, an idol is something we look to to give us what only God can give us. We look to money to give us security, to provide for us, to rescue us, to comfort us. Just listen to the kind of language we use when we speak about money. You see, the one true living God is Trinity. God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. God, our Creator. God the Father, the one who provides. God the Son, the Saviour. God the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But notice how we think money can replace the Trinitarian God. Listen to the language. We look at people who have great wealth and describe them as self-made men. Money made them what they are, but I thought God was our creator. We think money can give us everything we need, replacing God the Father who is the provider. We think money can be our saviour. If we have enough of it, it can get us out of any and every difficult situation, replacing God who is the, the God the Son who is the saviour. And then we talk about taking a trip to Meadow Hall to go comfort shopping. You understand, I don't talk in that way, can't bear the place. But anyway, you know the thing, we go to Meadow Hall to go comfort shopping, we buy stuff to make us feel better about ourselves, we think money can replace God, the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter. We look to money to give us all we need. We speak of money as a God. But look at things in the light of eternity. Sit next to the the loved one, your greatest loved one, just after they've died, and it will expose how impotent money really is. As I sat with my mum in those last days of her life, the Euro Millions rollover jackpot was the largest it has ever been. Do you remember a few months back? £162 million. If I'd won, which would have been a miracle as I don't do the lottery, if I'd won, if I had that much money, it would not have changed a single thing as I sat there at 8.45 on Sunday, 17th of July. I could have been one of the richest people in the country and I'd still have been sitting by my mum's bedside looking at her body, motionless and lifeless. All the money in the world would not have brought her back and this is the point, all the money in the world would not have bought her eternal life. Money cannot provide for us what we really need. God the Father can. Money cannot save us. God the Son can. Money cannot comfort us. 
God the Holy Spirit does. We look to money to give us what we need. We look to money to give us security. But the recession should have opened our eyes to the folly of that way of thinking. Of course we long for security. We're finite beings, small little creatures in a vast universe. The world around us is scary with global issues raging that are way beyond our control. Global terrorism, global warming, global poverty, global recession. Of course we crave security. But we won't get it for money. Money's a terrible God. It can't deliver and it certainly can't get us what we need more than anything, eternal life. And Jesus knows that. And so because he loved rich and because he loves us, he speaks plainly to us. He tells us, get rid of your idols. They don't deliver. Quite the opposite. They rob us of the very thing we need, God. For you see, as we, as we cling on to our idols, they, they stop us from, from reaching out to, to God's kingdom. They promise us so much, they rob us of everything. They rob us of eternal life. How worrying is that? For you see, after this loving demand, Jesus makes our fifth point a terrifying comment. A terrifying comment. Verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, then who can be saved? How relevant this is for us here. For we are rich men. We are so wealthy compared to the people throughout the history of of the world. We have so much compared to people all over the world today. We have so much compared to people in Britain. We have so much compared to most people in Sheffield. We here in Forward have so much. And despite the current economic climate, and I know it's very hard for some, But despite that, and despite the possibility of a double-dip recession, we have so much, we are very wealthy. We are rich man. But you see, in this environment, in the environment that we live, with huge wealth all around us, with pleasant surroundings, with people living lavish lifestyles all around us, money is very likely to become a god for us, an idol. Listen again to, uh, to Keller on this. He writes so well on this subject. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and, and fantasising about new ways to make money, new, new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. Ring any bells? And if it's not money that is our God, then we crave money because money feeds our idol, keeps it alive. So Keller writes this. Another way to to discern your heart's true love is to look at how you spend your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. 
In fact, the mark of an idol is that you spend too much money on it and you must try to exercise self-control constantly. So do you see this from Jesus is a terrifying comment. Jesus says it twice. Verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's been so much nonsense written about this illustration of Jesus. People tell of a gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle and they explain that a camel could only squeeze through that gate if it took off its saddle and all its load. That's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus is giving us a picture of something that is impossible. A a, a camel, full-grown mammal with humps, you know, the lot, passing through the Eye of a Needle. I've brought one with me. A needle, which has an eye. I couldn't bring a camel with me today. I couldn't even find a toy camel. But for those Australian friends, I brought my, um, well, it's not mine, you understand. <laughs> almost uh, almost uh, let out a few secrets there. I brought Joshua's toy. And uh, let me try and illustrate it. You cannot get this kangaroo through the eye of a needle. It's not even a full-grown one. That's the point. It is impossible. And if you're not sure that I'm right, look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. It is impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of God because their wealth becomes their God. And rather than turn and follow Jesus, they would rather trust in their money. That is exactly what happened to Sir Richard Mann when Jesus told him to sell everything, give to the poor and follow him. Verse 22, at this his face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. His wealth was his security. He trusted his money to provide for him now and in his retirement. He looked to money to get him out of any problem that arose in the future. It was his saviour, not that he called it that, he called it his nest egg, something put away for a rainy day. And his wealth enabled him to live a lavish lifestyle. It comforted him. And so he would not give it up. He wouldn't deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. And so, verse 17, he would not inherit eternal life. For you see, only Jesus can bring us into God's kingdom and give us life beyond the grave. Only Jesus' death on the cross can bring us forgiveness for scornfully turning from the one true God and turning to other things, pathetic things. What an affront it is to him that we do that. What fools we are, how blind we are. We've turned from you, our glorious creator, and have worshipped things that are no gods at all. That's what we sing here in this church. And so, once we have wealth, verse 23, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Because wealth gets a grip on us and becomes our master. Here's what is so terrifying. Riches have the potential to keep us out of God's kingdom. Riches have the potential to rob us of eternal life. So let me say to those who are setting out on life, perhaps those here just setting out on your career, those in their 20s, those who have not yet got much in terms of wealth. In fact, you've probably just got a huge debt from being at university. Let me say this. 
Don't get locked into a lifestyle that chokes your relationship with God or even ends your relationship with God. Beware of the situation where you have the huge mortgage, private education for the children, the expectation of luxurious holidays and expensive gadgets and a full wardrobe and regular whining and dining. See, I've spent time with people who've been so locked into their lifestyle that when an issue comes up at work, and of course it is their job that funds the lifestyle, when this issue comes up, they feel unable to stand for Christ for fear of losing their job, which would mean losing everything they so treasure. These people are evangelical Christians. Don't get locked into that lifestyle. And a word to older people here. Those of you who feel you already are locked into that kind of lifestyle, don't be like Sir Richard Mann who went away sad, feeling that you, you can't change. 4, verse 27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Change is possible with God. And my prayer as I've prepared this week is that I would be free from the love of money. And that many of us here would be free from wealth as a god, an idol. And you know, the best way to get rid of money as our god is, verse 21, to give it away. A quote from Keller again, unashamedly, because he writes so well. Something is safe for us to maintain in our lives only if it has really stopped being an idol. That can happen only when we're truly willing to live without it. When we truly say from the heart, because I have God, I can live without you. And to, to be able to do that, for us to be able to do that, remember the first seven words of verse 21. Jesus says this to us because he loves us. Look at the cross of Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross I see love amazing, so divine. He doesn't do this because he hates us, he does it because he loves us. Look at the words of Jesus, look at the cross of Jesus and that will encourage you to live this way. And lastly, look at this encouraging perspective of verses 28 to 30, our sixth point. See, in verse 28, Peter and the disciples say, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And they'd given up their jobs and left their family. They'd denied self and taken up their cross. And Jesus said these wonderfully encouraging words to them. Verse 29, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, as we give up our idols, the things that we've looked to to provide for us and give us security and bring us comfort, as we give those things up, we begin to feel very vulnerable at the thought of parting from those things that have kind of been there for so long and that we've looked to. And then Jesus says, Look, you can give them up because you'll get all the provision and security and comfort you need and more in this life. 
That's what he's saying in verse 29, uh, in verse 29 and 30. You see, people, you'll know them, I, I know them, people have left home and family to follow Jesus. I think of a number of people that I've met down through the years whose family have disowned them because they became Christians and they knew that would happen and yet they still became Christians. And painful of that, that is, and it continues to be painful, they have found in God's church among his people many brothers and sisters who will do so much for them. Christian family who've helped them and loved them practically and emotionally been wonderful in these last few months for me to be talking to people who were going through extremely hard times and again and again they've said you know Christian brothers and sisters have helped us, they've come alongside us, they've done this for us, they've done that for us it's a lovely thing being part of Christchurch Forward no we're not perfect but you will literally have verse 30, hundreds of brothers and sisters People who in your time of need will provide for you practically with a home to live in and food to eat and clothes to wear should hard times come upon you. Listen to how Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes on this verse in The Cost of Discipleship. He says, If we take Jesus at his word, our reward is the fellowship of the church. Here is a visible brotherhood to compensate a hundredfold for all we've lost. Isn't that wonderful? As we throw throw away our idols and put God first, he provides now through his people. Well, he doesn't promise an easy ride, verse 30. Persecutions will come. But God does provide now through the church. And, end of verse 30, In the age to come, he gives us eternal life. Which brings us right back to where we began. Eternal life. There's nothing more important than that. Let's pray together. My guess is uh, a number of us, if not all of us, feel that there's some way we need to respond this morning. Uh, But at the same time, it's almost impossible to simply respond in a prayer. I know I need to go home and talk this through with Caroline. Maybe uh, you do as well. And so I'll leave a moment of silence for you to make your own response to God, maybe asking him to Drive these truths home, deep into your heart. Maybe simply for you to say that you want to do something about this and to give you the courage to do it in the weeks and months that lie ahead. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.